0: Genesis 17, 1 uh, to 3 is where we're going to be today. Uh, three verses. That's it. Uh, really, we're going to spend a lot of time in, in one of them. Yeah, what's up? So if I do that regularly, it's because I'm a nostalgic person, um, but don't take it um, too far. I just its me. I have now started my timer, so I don't preach for two hours. Okay. Good morning. Really honored to be here. Um, Blueprint Church. There's history in the room. There's stories that have shaped not just where Blueprint has been, shape where Blueprint is currently and will shape where Blueprint will be five, 10, 15, 20 years from now, God willing. And so I have the unique opportunity to step into this moment and prayerfully help propel you guys forward. In fact, that's my task today. I've been wrestling with um, this this moment for a while now once it was confirmed that, you know, I was going to be preaching here actually in town uh, for a wedding of one of our former uh, members. But when it was, was confirmed that, you know, like, I'm stepping into this preaching space here at Blueprint Church, God, what do you want to say? Like, like what would you have for us? Because the worst thing could be me just getting up here, charisma, trying to wax eloquent. And that, like, that's, that's foolish, which is most preaching right now. But But I'm like, God, what, what would you have for us? And so conceptually, there's been this idea that's just kind of been just burdening me. And it's really just to live off the page of your own story. Like God's signature is on your soul. He's made you uniquely and you owe it to yourself to honor him by discovering that and then living in that space. That's not where God led me today. Conceptually, there's another idea that has been burdening me to where we're gonna kind of touch on it a little bit. Where's this concept of seasons? I live in Miami, and so we kind of have seasons. We have hot, and Satan is breathing down my neck hot, where I walk outside and I start sweating for no reason. I start cussing hot. And depending on the moment, right? It's hurricane season. It could rain, and then two hours later, Hades, hot. So we have have seasons. But again, Atlanta has seasons as well. And just like there's seasons in the world, summer, spring, fall, winter, somewhere in between, there's seasons to life. This is, this is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where, where, where the, the, the preacher, the, the teacher, the leader, he, he talks about there's a time for this, there's a time for that, there's a time for this. And what, what, he, what he gets at is the reality that there are seasons to life. And here's what I know that you know. You don't get to choose the seasons that you're in. Some seasons choose you. And regardless of whether you choose the season or the season has chose you, a.k.a. nobody woke up March 2020, you know what I want to do. I want to exist in a global pandemic for the foreseeable future. That's a great idea. Like, nobody did that. And so we know that some seasons we choose, but by and large, seasons choose us. And regardless of whether we choose them or they choose us, we have a responsibility to navigate the seasons of life well. And so Blueprint is in a season. Period. I am an outsider, and I know that you guys are in a season. And so there is a burden to say, what, what, What might it look like to step into this space and, through the Word of God, maybe help Blueprint navigate the season that it's in? Well, but in order to do that, you actually have to determine the season you're in. And I'm not here on the ground level, so I can't help with that fully. Does that make sense? But here's the reality. Regardless of what season that you're in, the opportunity God places in front of us is to grab hold of the goodness of the Lord. And so the burden I have today is to push us into that space, to move towards something more excellent and noble than what I have seen consistently in our global season, COVID, and then even culturally in certain places, Atlanta, which is this ungodly move towards a disconnected disembodied spirituality where activity for God is confused with closeness with God, where proximity is confused with intimacy. Fam, I used to live down the street, 64 Boulevard. First of all, what happened to the old 4-4? I just, I'm like, oh my God, amen for gentrification. But (laughs) can't afford to live here now. Some of you can and that's okay. God has set you up for a reason. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, me and my kids, we went to the MLK house, and I realized I lived right next door to the MLK house for like three years and did not step foot in it not one time. You could be close. You could have proximity to certain things, but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily connected or you have intimacy with it. And disconnected spirituality looks like proximity with no intimacy. I'm pushing against all of that today. And Genesis helps us to that end, to move us towards something more noble, more excellent, more necessary, that I believe will lead Blueprint in an excellent way in the season you guys find yourselves in, however you define that, hopefully rightly, for the future God would have for you, which is ultimately with him, life from presence. And so that's Genesis 17. Uh, three verses, one we're really going to emphasize in the movement of our time, the movement of our text towards that end of really just grounding us in something more noble, which is presence with God. There's really, I'm going to look at a few things. We're going to look at a few things together. First is we're going to look at this when dynamic, which does speak two seasons. It, it shows up in the timing of it all. And then we're going to look at the words God says to Abram. The imperatives that he gives Abram. And then we're going to close with Abram's response to to God. And so I'm just going to explore this text. The when, the words God gives, and Abram's response to God. And then we'll um, be done and let the fathers go get full off of whatever barbecue is happening right now. Happy Father's Day to you, Juneteenth. Cry freedom to us all. Read with me. Um, John 17, one reads like this. When, when Abram was 99 years old, <laughs> the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. I'm going to frustrate some of us because you may be familiar with Genesis 17, and so you may be like, can we get to the rest of this chapter, this circumcision dynamic, things of that nature? The answer to that question is no. Not because it's not necessary, but because it's not where we are currently. And so preaching is meant to be supplemental. It's meant to us and stir us and move us, it is not meant to be the source of our relationship with God. Therefore, you have the beautiful opportunity, Christian or not, to explore the rest of Genesis 17 that I'm not going to get to. Does that make sense? So I just, I'm comfortable frustrated, some of you guys, particularly because I'm not your pastor, so I don't really know you. I'm going to leave, go get in the car here in a little bit. God bless. Amen. But Genesis 17 it's critical for how we're meant to understand the relationship God wants with people. The, the, the depths here are what they are. They're, they're beautiful. They're dynamic. They've, they've, been, they've been sending me this last week particularly. Had this conversation with a few of our close friends, a few of our leaders at our church back in Miami. Let's start with the timing. When Abraham was 99 year, or Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, "I am God Almighty." Let's pause there. There's, there's a few dynamics that we just need to grab here before we apply it and move on. First, the timing is rich. Abram is some 24 years in to relationship with God. That's longer than some of y'all have been alive. That's longer than the average age of our church back in Miami. And so he has history with God. Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man, calls him out for where he was and and says, man, I'm gonna give you a, a place I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make from you a people. I have a promise for you. I have purpose for you. Go. Abram says, okay. And he starts going, responding with faith and obedience. God shows up again. Genesis 15 makes this covenant with him, this unique relationship. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Genesis 16, some 13 years later, Abram's like, you know what? God's not moving fast enough. His wife Sarai is on the same page. Like, where is God at? God must need our help. And so, so they, they, they attempt to help God accomplish his purpose their way. does not work out well. But for some 24 years Abram has had relationship with God. And that relationship has cut through valleys. It has cut through mountains, highs. It has been marked by deception, dysfunction and dynamic encounters with God Almighty. And what that communicates to me, this God intersecting Abram, 99 years old, unexpected timing, unexpected intersection, but absolutely necessary. What it communicates to me is that the relationship that God intends to have with his people is progressive. It's not static. It is dynamic. Abram is a microcosm of progressive revelation and progressive relationship. So God is intersecting this man and there's, a, there's, there's new elements of who God is that he is going to figure out, i.e., I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Now, I think that's purposeful the way that he's intersecting him because he's intersecting him saying, like, I am the God of the mountains, I am the powerful one, my ability is infinitely greater than your And he's going to draw him into what that means as we see in the rest of of this text. But there's a progressive nature to the relationship that God is inviting Abram to have. And he, he's a test case for that, we notice to be true, because while God has been known as El Shaddai for the next 500 or so years, 505 to be exact, from here to Exodus chapter three, this is how people are going to relate to God, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your forefathers, El Shaddai, and then what happens in Exodus chapter 3 is significant, it is Moses now being called by God, and then Moses asks God, well, what's your name, Mashamo, i.e., not just what do I call you, but tell me what you're like, what's your nature, I kind of understand you as the God of my forefathers, but you kind of seem like you've been distant for a while, Uh, thus, we're in slavery, and so, like, who are you? And then God gives him his name, but before God gives him his name, he gives him his nature, Maybe you're familiar with this in Exodus chapter 3. This is the Ayah, Asher, Ayah, the I am that I am, right? So, so and that's God saying, that's my, that's, I'm, I am, that's my name. But then when you, when you call me by my name, it's Yahweh, third person. And so, so he builds his name by first giving it his nature, and it's progressive. And so God says in Exodus, I didn't even reveal myself like this to Abraham. And then he's going to drag Moses deeper into who God is. Exodus 34, after Moses has said, he really interceded on behalf of the people of God. And and, and then he makes this daring, bold request of God. God, show me your glory. And then God begins to say, okay, I'm going to show you my glory. And what's powerful about this scene is it's not the splitting of the Red Ocean or the Red Sea, right? It's not the raising of dead people. It's not the opening the eyes of the blind, blind. It's just God telling Moses about himself. You want to know my glory? Cool. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. And he starts to go into the depths of his character. So I gave you my name in Exodus chapter 3, a unique way where you could start to relate to me. And I'm building out what that means, Exodus 34. And then you get the rest of the Old Testament, God building out that character that he mentioned in Exodus 34. Merciful, abounding in steadfast love, full of Hesed, faithful, loyal interaction with my people. And then you get to Jesus in John 1.14 where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've beheld his glory. We got to see all of who God was in a unique way. And then what's said of Jesus is in Hebrews, that in, in past times, God spoke to us through our forefathers and to, through the prophets. But in these final days, these last days, he's spoken to us through Jesus Christ, who is the exact radiance of his glory. The decisive revelation of God. But what you see is there is a progressive nature to it. And even the disciples who walked with Jesus didn't fully get it until after he died and resurrected. And they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. What we see from the beginning as it relates to this timing is there's a progressive dynamic to the relationship God wants with people. It's not static. It is fresh. It is movement. Now it cuts through circumstances that are challenging. It cuts through circumstances that are more celebratory, but it is always on the move. It is not stationary. The timing does it for me. Now, let me apply some of that as it relates to this when dynamic. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. This was unexpected from Abram's standpoint but it was divine in fact it makes sense um but what what we meant to see at the end of like Genesis 17 is Ishmael is 13 so if you're familiar with Jewish culture you know that 13 becomes transitionary right that's where boys become men almost so there's going to be a unique way Abram is now going to relate to his son in terms of okay man you're you're, you're, the, you're the promised one in my eyes and so, so now you're gonna move towards just son, but how can I set you up as keeper of the promise? And God is intersecting this man as actually not gonna be him. Right? But Ishmael is a statement of Abram's unbelief. We talk about the Abram story, if you're familiar with it, if you've been a Christian for any degree of time, maybe you have been a Christian for 24 years. We talk about how Sarai kind of was like, what's going on? How about you just take my servant slave woman and let's have this surrogate situation set up. And then we crush Sarai. When, I, Like I could just imagine being Sarai. If you, if you currently are dealing with infertility, so days like Father's Day and Mother's Day, they don't, they don't produce any degree of joy in you, just sadness and reminder of inability. These days are tough, right? But if you've, if you, if you've battled with that and or you're currently experiencing that or you have friends who've experienced that, you know who gets the worst end of the infertility dynamic? It's actually not the guys. It's often the woman. Part of that is because of the way that we treat motherhood as the epitome of womanhood. And so your, your main goal in life, woman, is to just be a mom somewhere. And that's like, that is so dangerous, destructive. But I just think about Sarai at the time saying, well, just take, take, take my Egyptian slave And Abram does it and it works. And just the way she has to now wrestle with herself. I guess it really was me. I guess I was an issue. I guess Chaldeans are really virile. And something's wrong with me. Anyway, it's a statement of unbelief, particularly disbelief in God's ability. So God intersecting this man, it's El Shaddai, is a reminder evaluate your life through my ability not your own to evaluate our lives god included through our ability is poison to the soul it is corrosive now the scriptures don't call us to some blind naive optimism they call us to something better it's hope the breath of life, but it is hope that is rooted in truth. It is hope that is rooted in who God is and what God says. So the timing does it for me because right after this mistake, God comes in and introduces himself in a powerful way. The timing continues to do it for me because 99 does matter what it communicates from an application standpoint, then we'll move on, is that it's never too late. Some of us have discounted what God could do in our lives. We're like, it is too late. That ship has sailed. And a prof of mine, um, Howard Hendricks, goat status. He's your favorite pastor's pastor. Pastor. People quote him, but don't quote him because we plagiarize. Word for that is sin. But he says this, when your memories are more exciting than your dreams, you've begun to die. He is right. He was right. And what God does is he pulls us just from this weird nostalgia of always looking back to seeing things through his lens of Strength, Shaddai, Almighty, the God of the mountains. And in looking forward with what he can do, it's never too late. Regardless of your circumstance or your situation, your life station, it is not too late. Furthermore, it's never too late as it relates to your failures as well. This story is on the heels of grave sin. Make no mistake about it trying to accomplish God's purposes, our ways, is sin. It is disbelief that shows up as disobedience, which creates separation. It is sin. Yet God comes on the back end of his sin and actually starts to draw him closer into relationship. It's the when matters. Moving on. the weight of this text and how it moves us to a more excellent way is not just with the when of it, right, but it's in the words that are communicated by God, these, these verbs. It, it, read with me. It says this, live in my presence and be blameless. Live in my presence and, 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 and be, be blameless. So if you're reading from the ESV, right, it says walk before me and be blameless that I may. That, that, that I think it tricks us a little bit because it's a, it almost makes the walking before me be blameless as conditional for something. Well, that's actually not what's happening here. There's, there's a connection the way this is written, the, the live in my presence. It's this, this idea of the way you work out the entirety of your life. So it's just taking steps back and forth. It's just walking around. Jesus uses this concept as well. If you think about Matthew chapter 4 where he calls the first disciples and he says, follow me. The Greek word there is parapateo. So we're just walking in a circle. Just going round and round. In other words, the emphasis isn't necessarily the activity that we're doing as much as it's the person we're doing the activity with. Does that make sense? Very similarly here, it's live in my presence. Live out the entirety of your life at my feet. Now, depending on how you interpret this, because it is two verbs, it's two imperatives, it's live in my presence or walk before me, and it's be blameless. You may see it as sequence, right? So it's walk before me, live in my presence, and be blameless but I don't think it's sequence, I think it's consequence. You live in my presence and it will express itself out as being blameless, does that make sense? Now, it's emphasized for a reason, we'll get there, but what he's inviting us to is relationship at the feet of God, in my presence. And it communicates so much, what it communicates above all is that God actually desires presence with his people. So maybe, maybe this could be me. This could be me. But somebody invites me to a function, a kickback. Do y'all know what a kickback is? Is that urban colloquial? So somebody invites me to a function, a whole situation. First question I ask is, who's going to be there? Right? Right? Because depending on who's there, I may or may not be going. That's one. Two, depending on who's there, that's gonna determine that if I go, because I might not, but if I go, am I driving or am I riding with you? Because I may wanna leave when I wanna leave. Does that also make sense? That's me, being honest. I mean, that may be you. Welcome. But what that communicates is there's certain people that I'm really just tolerating, right? So I'll go there, and I'm just going to kind of just be there. I'm just tolerating, oh, I don't really want to be here. And then because I'm just kind of tolerating a person or I'm tolerating the circumstance, I'm really waiting for who I want to show up to finally get there. And it, it comes out in conversation when you're having small talk and you, you like you're having like different conversations in your head because you're like, I'm really not really like talking to you, although we're exchanging words, you know, but I'm really like, oh, man, I just got to wait you out until such and such gets here and hopefully saves me from this conversation in Jesus name. Welcome to pastoring. I'm saving you. You're welcome. I can speak. I don't have to. Does that make sense? When I see this, this, this communicates how much God is the opposite of me and how much he is the opposite of us. This invitation to live in my presence communicates desire and want to not tolerate it. It means that God's not waiting for somebody else to get to the party to spend time with you. Now, I understand where two or more are gathered, I'm there. That's a unique expression of manifest presence. It's why these moments matter, even though we take them for granted. However, that is not to, like, steamroll the reality that God has sought you out by name, human, and desires presence with you personally, uniquely Christian. This is Genesis to Revelation. I'll read and then keep it moving, like, Genesis 3, 8, so even in the midst of their sin, this is what happens, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening, breeze, other translations say in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden because they were ashamed, obviously. However, the fact that he's walking in the garden in the midst of the day shows that this isn't a one-time thing God does. He's been doing it. It's like God is doing his normal routine, they're not responding normally because of their sin nevertheless god is after presence god is after presence with his people this is exodus chapter 40 we've been going through exodus as a church and it is glorious and what you see even at the end with the construction of the tabernacle the tent of meeting the place where the fullness of god dwells it is for presence so a cloud is there a pillar of fire is there to communicate that God is there. And the way Exodus ends is that wherever they go, God is there with him because he's after presence. This is John 14 again, where Jesus dwelt among us. This is Revelation 21, three through five. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. They will be his people's, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. It's presence. From cover to cover to the world that's coming, God is after presence with his people. He wants it. He doesn't need it. He wants it. He desires it. And then he invites people to live in that space. Live in my presence. That's the imperative, to live in my presence. I love it. I love it because it shows us how much God cares for us. Practically, live in my presence isn't... God, you just kind of be in the room and we'll be in the room together now. Live in my presence doesn't communicate this idea of peripheral, like a peripheral relationship with with God, which is what most Christians actually have. We have the just enough Jesus relationship where, where, where we consider him, we consider him, but he's not central. He's not what Colossians calls for, which is preeminent, first before any, chief among all, central being the primary focus and frame of reference. We understand this idea practically that if you design a room, interior designers, if you're in here, amen, all of us kind of dabble in that look at your living room and usually what happens is what's central in your living room is the television and then you arrange your furniture around it so that it's optimal viewing for everybody, right? And Jesus is saying that's, that's the idea of central. It is, it is focus and it is frame of reference. And when he says live in my presence, he's saying that's, that's what it means, that I am central. I'm not peripheral, I'm not just in the room. I'm I'm, I'm centering your entire life, live in my presence. It's an invitation to cherish and not merely consider. It's an invitation to take Psalm 73 as our own. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on this earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is to strengthen my heart and my portion forever. It is to cherish him so deeply that he dictates every single aspect of our lives. Be blameless. Be blameless. Now, that blameless, that, that, that word is the same word used as it talks about the, the law of God, Psalm 119, that the law of the Lord is, is perfect. Now, but, but that could communicate something, I think, unhealthy of how we may understand Blameless. This is the build out of a concept in Jewish culture called Kadush Hashem to honor the name. That to be blameless before God is to pursue righteousness. It is not merely to pursue this experience ethereally of perfection. Nor is it to be currency to receive blessing, which is why I push against the way the ESV translates this. Because that's actually how we think. We, we think that God gives us formula for relationship. John Mark Comer, he, all of his writings are amazing. But he has this, one, God has a name, and he talks about this idea that God is more friend than formula. I like it. And he, he also identifies this framework that, that we, we tend to operate out of this formula, which is this. All, all, all spiritual traditions do it, but it's morality plus religious activity minus sin equals God's blessing. And so what Christians do, it's like, yo, know, like, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you some Sunday attendance. I'll give you some midweek attendance, whatever structure that is. For us as city groups, we had that name first. You're welcome. I know y'all be checking for us. It's cool. Note amen. And so let me give you some Sunday attendance. Let me give you some city group attendance. Let me stop sleeping around. Let me let me subtract whatever I determine is sin, and then you give me blessing. Thus, I'm blameless, I'm I'm subtracting sin, I'm pursuing perfection as much as possible, and this becomes the currency for blessing. That is a terrible reading of this text, and it is a terrible understanding of blessing. We know this to be the case just with this text alone. What comes next is the introduction of this covenant sign circumcision. But it is not a vehicle to move God to do a thing is an expression of faith because this covenant was first given in Genesis chapter 15. And maybe you're familiar what happens in Genesis chapter 15. God meets Abram again and Abram is struggling. God, how will I know that you're really for me? How will I know that you will fulfill all the promises that you've made? And then God says, guess what we're getting ready to do? We're getting ready to enter into covenant together. Something more legally binding than a contract, but more relationally excellent than a marriage, even though that's why we talk about marriage as covenant. And he says, we're entering into this together. And he says, we're going to enter into what is a suzerain vassal covenant. It's a covenant that usually between kings or people of prestige would enter into the people that they serve. They should serve, but often they abuse. That's what power does. When it corrupts. And so, the way Genesis 15 reads, and and, and Abram knows what's happening. God God instructs him get get these, these animals, and he starts cutting these animals, and then he creates this pathway for the two pieces of these slain animals. And Abraham understands, okay, I know what should happen next because this is a suzerain vassal covenant. It's between somebody of prestige and repute and somebody less than. God is obviously more prestigious than me and I'm less than him. And so the person of less notoriety and less nobility, they would walk through these two pieces, the flesh ripped. And as they're passing through it, what what they're doing is they're making a statement that says, if I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant, would it be done to me as it was done to these animals? So if I don't fulfill the terms of this covenant, slay me. And so Abram is ready to do this. He's ready to walk through. I'm about to make it. Look, me and God, we're going to be in this binding agreement. It's going to be beautiful. And something unique happens. Abram doesn't pass through. A smoking fire pot passes through. Cloud, fire, the presence of God passes through saying, Abraham, you sit down somewhere. I am so determined to be relationally connected to you to fulfill my promises on your behalf for your good and the sake of the world that I'm going to pass through. And when you fail, I am going to bear the consequence, not you. So when we have that set in Genesis 15, we know when Genesis 17 comes on the scene and it's now the sign of circumcision, it is not God undoing what he said. It is God inviting Abraham to deeper faith. Expressing blamelessness, which is the pursuit of righteousness, the expression of faith, not a means to corner God into blessing at all. It's pursue Righteousness, it is honor the name. But it's not just pursue righteousness as it relates to good deeds and love and service. There are statements of human dignity and statements of God's glory. Psalm 89, the throne of heaven, its foundation is righteousness and justice. But pursuing integrity, Forces a confrontation with our sin. So being blameless forces confrontation with personal sin. I have a sweet tooth. It doesn't help, you know, there's no layers in Miami. But I also realize um, genetically, I think you could pass the sweet tooth on. My kids also have a sweet tooth, all three of them. So I like Starburst, Sour Patch Kids, things of that nature. Don't travel as much anymore because we've been in a global apocalypse. But I would travel, come home, kick it, and usually like my you know, transition back into normal life, it involves some coffee, Some PlayStation, my Bible, because I'm holy and I'm walking blameless before the (laughs) Lord, and some Starburst. So I'm in my office one day. I have a bag of Starburst. I set it down. True story. I leave for a little bit. I come back, and my bag is empty. And I'm like, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. So I start investigating. And because, you know, I pay the bills in my house, I could go in any room I want in my house, in Jesus' name. So I start investigating. And as I'm investigating, I see a trail of Starburst rappers, I kid you not. (laughs) And this trail leads to one of my kids' beds. I'm not going to name them. They're here today. And I'm like, you jerk. Like, and you did a terrible job. Like, why why did I just throw the rappers away? And so there's this bag, this, and I'm so angry, yo. (laughs) Psalm 90 humbles me. It reads like this. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. What I have seen over and over again, pastorally and personally, is we relate to sin like my children related to the candy they stole from me. We think we have an effective way of covering our tracks and burying what is most broken about us we don't. In fact, the way Psalm 90 reads is that our sin is more effective at burying us than we are at burying it. And what God does is he invites all people to be brought into the light, not drug into it. To go there actively with our sin. This is a personal confrontation when he says be blameless pursue righteousness pursue integrity bring what is most broken about you the sin you commit that which lives in your heart not the ones that other people see not the ones that are shared and agreed upon but the ones that stare at you when it's just you and the mirror The ones that keep you up when it's you and your pillow. The ones you're afraid that people will find out about and they'll start treating you differently. You bring that to me. That's pursuing integrity. It's understanding that scars are better than skeletons. That when we bring our sin to light before God, he actually deals with it. And then he says stuff like James 5.16 to confess your sin one to another so that you could be healed, i.e., there's a type of healing that is only attached to interpersonal like work and interrelational confession. And it and it creates a level of scar tissue because you're like, oh my gosh, that hurt. this hurts. But it's better than the skeletons in our closet, yeah. And maybe seasonally blueprint. This is a window and a mirror moment where God is putting a window in front of you and saying, see me. See what I could do with your life in this moment. See what I could do with your story as a church and a mirror moment where he's saying, look at yourself with integrity. What God invites us towards, what he says, be blameless before me is to not blame others for our sin, nor attempt to bury our sin, but to bring it to Jesus and realize that he's a soft place to land. It's a concept a friend of mine, a leader at our church has brought out that Jesus is a soft place to land. He is the embodiment of Psalm 103. The Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abound in steadfast love same way he revealed his glory exodus 34 he will not always accuse us or be angry forever he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities he treats us based on his kindness his goodness and the plans he has for us and not merely the ways in which we fail that's why the end of this is powerful. Verse 14, 13 and 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows that we are ma- what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. He knows our frame. And God's knowledge of us, the, the possibility of forgiveness, is fuel for confession. We know we don't confess when we don't feel forgiveness is possible. And you remove the possibility of forgiveness from relationships and they will die. Here lies another relationship. The casualty of a corroded heart full of resentment. Not merely what was done to you, but your inability to move forward, not move on. That relationship is dead. God invites life. On the other side of forgiveness, walk blameless before him. I want to close with Moses, not Moses, Abram's response. Um, Blueprint. Verse 3, then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. This is par for the course. Tremendous experiences with God lead to worship. It is the reflex of relationship. It is the reflex of encountering greatness. And yes, worship throughout the scriptures, it is defined as right thoughts in the mind, rooted in right affections in the heart, producing right actions with your life. However, this fall face down, that is consistent, that is frequent, communicates a level of of nearness and intimacy that I think is necessary to defining worship. He understood what took place, and he's like, here I am, face on the floor before God. And I wonder, I wonder if we take those moments that God gives us to fall on our face before him and stay there to the end. God spoke with him. So. What I want for you guys is an embodied spirituality that's connected to relationship, to nearness with God. And what I wanna challenge you guys with is what we've worked through. It's never too late. God invites us to live in his presence, live from that space, to be blameless before him, pursuing righteousness and integrity Honoring the name in a way that draws us closer and closer and closer to the God we claim. And maybe for some of us, the renewal that is embodied here, because this is a renewal of the relationship. Make no mistake about it. Abram has sinned. God is renewing the relationship. Dust the change of name. There's a renewal here. Some of us need that renewal. Spiritually dry, we know it. Others see it. Living in sin, people see it. We don't think they do. Maybe if we have this moment, or we say, I'm just going to go get before you, God. Nearness and worship and seeing my heart to where it needs to be. We could have a more excellent experience in this season that we're in. And would it build upon itself and upon itself to the future? Pray with me, I'm taking too much of your time. God, we honor you. We honor you because you're the same God.